Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Middle Island, located just north of Alpena, Michigan, is currently for sale, with an asking price of $3.9 million, which is not bad considering the outrageous dollars even the humblest of properties are fetching across the U.S. and Michigan, especially here in Northern Michigan. The 227-acre island, located near the Thunder Bay Shipwreck Preserve, comes complete with a lodge housed in the former Foghorn Signal Building and a 76-foot-tall historic lighthouse that has remained active since 1905. Although the lighthouse is still officially owned by the U.S. Coast Guard, the new owner will have full access to the light. Secluded. That is a term that was chosen to highlight the rare opportunity for someone to own their own private island, which has been one of my lifelong dreams. I used to have Siberian Huskies that loved to run free, so what could have possibly been a better place than a private island to have let them do so safely? But seclusion can also come with a price tag of its own, a price that many lightkeepers experienced in the early years of navigational maritime service here in Michigan, the state that has more lighthouses than any other in the U.S. Such seclusion can often be associated with a phenomena generically called cabin fever. The consequences of this psychological condition or mental breakdown from prolonged isolation have often proven to be quite severe, even resulting in murder or other heinous acts of violence and malevolence throughout history. Although many of Michigan's lighthouses were and still continue to be off the beaten path and could be quite lonely places to spend months or even years while serving one's duty, some lighthouses offered the only opportunity for social interaction. For the devoted caretakers, perhaps their families, along with other residents that live nearby, like the Christmas celebrations at Seishwa Lighthouse, or ironically, the mainlanders from Grow Cap, a very special place located just west of St. Ignace that I visit upon most of my UP treks, would often cross over to St. Helena Island via boat or even on foot across the ice in winter months to attend social events as opposed to vice versa, as one might naturally assume. With a simple search, you can find vintage pictures online of women and men alike dressed in their very best Victorian attire, greeting the great ships coming to Chris Point Lighthouse, which to this day is still so isolated that it requires quite a commitment to reach by car. Just ask the two sisters that were stranded on a narrow sandy two-track in April of 2015 while attempting to reach the famous structure. They survived their ordeal by eating only Girl Scout cookies and drinking melted snow for 13 days. Although the lighthouse keeper job paid well and offered steady employment, being a keeper was not an easy job. In addition to being responsible for keeping their lights glowing as beacons of safety for the thousands of sailors on the Great Lakes depended on them with their lives, which in the early years meant dragging buckets of whale oil up the curving narrow stairwells every four hours or so, likely repetitively counting each step in their heads as they went, all while being dressed in their formal uniforms in anticipation of an impromptu visit and evaluation by their superiors, Keepers were also required to keep the inside and outside of their living quarters spotlessly cleaned and whitewashed, or painted, as well as the lighthouses themselves. This seemingly benign image of a lighthouse keeper painting a building 100 years ago is now going to serve as a segue of introduction, bear with us, for our returning guest, author, lighthouse expert, and enthusiast extraordinaire, Diana Stampfler, who joins us to talk about her new book, Death and Lighthouses on the Great Lakes. A History of Murder and Misfortune. So a warm welcome back to my friend, Diana Stampfler. All right. Thank you for joining us. Hey, how, thanks for having me. Of course. You know, it's true. You, you've been researching all aspects of lighthouses on the Great Lakes for many years. 
Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was about late 1997 when I first started researching lighthouses. I was working at the time for the West Michigan Tourist Association in Grand Rapids um, doing some project work for one of their publications called the Lake Michigan Circle Tour and Lighthouse Guide. And I got instantly hooked as people who are fascinated with lighthouses often do. It became much more than just cataloging the lights on Michigan's shorelines. And in the offshores, um, I mean, we have 129 lights in Michigan, more than any other state. And of course, the Great Lakes region just continues to grow on that. But I became quite fascinated with the stories of the keepers, men and women, and digging into their family tree and often some of the darker sides of, of their service. You know, I think back, the last work that Edgar Allan Poe was writing was called The Lighthouse when he died. And it was about the the um, remoteness, the desolation, the darkness of of that uh, industry. It's just become such a fascination for me to to dig into these family trees and learn the stories of what kept these keepers, in many cases, serving for 40, 45 years into that into that industry. I mean, it's not an easy job. I mean, you know, Chris, I know you've climbed many a lighthouse tower. Can you imagine doing that every day, several times a day for 45 years? So no. And and if, <laughs> it would be physically impossible because when I go up a lighthouse stairwell, I do it four points. I have uh, my hands on two different bars and each foot on a different step. I've convinced myself that somehow or another, if something gives, I'll be able to save myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're better than I am because in recent years, I mean, I've always had a fear of heights, which is interesting to have a fascination with lighthouses. But in recent years, um, just climbing the tower will give me anxiety attacks. Actually, interestingly enough, that happened, uh, I want to say in the summer of 15, when I had made the trek all the way out to Chris Point Lighthouse in the UP along Lake Superior. And, and for those who have been out there, they know it's such a winding and, and um, treacherous drive. It had been raining significantly, lots of flooding in that area. And so I was navigating major puddles. And, uh, and I got out there, I was by myself, and I was so excited that I found it myself. And I got out there and made three or four steps in that tower and my heart started racing. And I started sweating and I just, I had to, to come down and I have not been able to climb a tower since. In fact, I don't even try anymore because I know just, I'm about the only one I can do is White River Light Station in Whitehall because it's like 10 steps to a landing and it's not all the way up. That's about as far as I can go these days. I guess I can't be a keeper. <laughs> no. You should try Old Presqu'isle Island. It's a little bit, little bit calmer there and the steps are uh, enclosed. They're all cement. So, but yeah. My daughter Michaela would just laugh at me as I was trying to come up the steps, and she's outside running around the, you know, the uh, the exposed balcony, and I'm just like I'm, I'm on step forty two, you know, just trying to get up there. Yeah, and it's sometimes not even the it's it's also the coming down part, you know, where you can see all the way down the tower, you can see through the steps, and you know, I I guess I also know that that's inevitable, and if I can't if I have the anxiety attack at the top and I can't get down, the alternative. It doesn't sound good either, you know, if you have to be rescued um, and brought down on a, I don't even know if they could bring you down on a stretcher or how it would, how it would be. So I just find that it's much more enjoyable for me to just view these beautiful lights from outside. 
it's irony on both of our parts because, you know, you're the enthusiast even more than I am about lighthouses. And then I have to climb and yet I still suffer the same anxiety. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't, I can't do it anymore, but it's still, it's, it doesn't diminish the, the fascination that I have. And, you know, the fact that, that I love to go in and explore and, you know, out of the, out of the 129 lights in Michigan, I've seen most of them. There are a few here and there, a couple in the Keweenaw. Ironically, I've never seen a little Sobble Point in mirrors in the Silver Lake Sand Dunes area, which is interesting. It's the only one on that stretch of Lake Michigan that I have not seen. I've seen all of the Straits area lights uh, taking Shepler's boat cruises. I've been up the St. Mary's River, so I've seen all of those. And I think I've hit everything on uh, on the Lake Huron side as well. So just a handful of lights here and there that I have not visited. I started a list not long ago just to, to make sure that in my lifetime I can and at least see all of them here in the state of Michigan. It was kind of a, a bonding experience for Michaela and I. We would go off on dad-daughter trips, and we, she had a, a lighthouse passport. She had to get each one stamped, so sometimes we'd hit even three in a weekend. Oh, and wow. Now, we will have a chance to explain the lighthouse painting reference uh, a bit later if you're so inclined, but you wrote and researched this book during the pandemic. What types of challenges did that uh, present? Well, it was interesting in a lot of ways because normally I would travel a lot more to some of these lights to do research on site. And this new book is Great Lakes based. And so several of the lights, I think four or five of them are in Canada. Well, as you know, we were not allowed to travel to Canada, um, you know, during the early part of, of the pandemic. And so I was not able to get to to those lights. I was then doing a lot of online research and then reaching out to libraries, town halls, historical societies, museums. Well, they were closed or working remotely and didn't have access to all their archives. So it became a little bit of a challenge primarily with the Canadian lights to get enough information or to verify information. And I was very fortunate to be able to utilize Facebook of all things, you know, with the growing interest in historical Facebook groups, I was reaching out through those. I would join those groups. One great example is Clapperton Island in uh, Northern Lake Huron. And I had learned about this family and this one family with three men who had served as, as keepers. They were the Baker uh, family. So father, son, and grandson had all served at the same light, as well as, I guess, father, two sons, and then a, a grandson. I put a note in this Facebook group and, and said, you know, hey, I'm doing this research. Does anybody have information? And people in that group who were well-versed in this light and this family started sending me things. Or they would say, well, I, I've seen a newspaper clip at the local museum and it's open on Saturday. So this Saturday I'll run down and get a picture of it for you. And then they would send that back. And in fact, I connected with one of the members of that group when it was time to fact check and proofread the chapter. And I asked him, you know, I said, you know, this area better than I do. Would you be willing to review the chapter for accuracy? And he came back and provided some very significant corrections in the copy that I just didn't understand in terms of bodies of water and the geography of that area of Canada. And so it was, I think, in some regards, very helpful 
more helpful than normal because I don't know that I would have gone to those to those groups had I had the access to the libraries and town halls and things like that. So that was a little bit of a challenge. One of the more ironic parts of the research, uh, we did get down to Lake Erie to South Bass Island, which is where Put-In Bay is at. And I actually had been wanting to get down to this place to travel just because I'd heard some cool things about it. And so we, we went down there and stayed for four days in August of 2020 and connected with a lot of the historical society folks and they met me and we did some tours but what was most interesting about that light was that one of the uh, unofficial assistant keepers there in the late 1800s was an african-american man named sam anderson and he'd been hired to kind of help harry riley the main keeper tend to the light well during his tenure there was a pandemic there was a smallpox Hmm. outbreak in ohio And it was just ironic to be researching and writing about a pandemic while you're actually going through one and pulling the history. And in fact, Sam Anderson tried to escape the island. The whole island was on lockdown quarantine because of of this. And ironically, only like 25 people died. I don't don't mean to say only 25, but uh, in the scope of what we were going through at the time, you know, in the world uh, with COVID, to have the, the amount of lockdown on that island for 25 people that died. And Sam Anderson was deathly afraid of contracting it and dying. So he tried to escape the island and he got caught and got sent back to the lighthouse. Interestingly enough, the next day, his body was found on a cliff on, below the lighthouse. And they ruled it a suicide, which was interesting because if you think about the logic of that, yeah, why would a man who is screaming and trying to escape an island because he didn't want to die of smallpox, didn't want to die. Why would he commit suicide? Makes no sense, right? Right. And But I, I wonder, you know, at the time, 1898, you know, he was an African-American man. He, did they care? You know, you, you wonder if that was part of the reasoning that they just quietly deemed it suicide and, and moved about. Interestingly, Harry Riley Within 24 to 48 hours of Sam's death, he was arrested on the mainland uh, in Sandusky. He had gone mad, and they ended up putting him in the Toledo State Hospital. He was committed. He was deemed uh, insane. His wife signed off on sending him there, and he died six months later at that asylum. There was early speculation at the time that what had happened to Sam Anderson had drove him mad. There was speculation that Maybe he, there was a fight with Sam and, and Sam fell over the edge in the fight and, and Riley was so guilt-ridden about that that it drove him mad. Or, you know, that he was mad and then killed Sam and then escaped. They, there were all these theories that put it back on, put Sam's death back on, on Harry. And what they ultimately determined in communicating with folks from the Toledo State Hospital Historical Society was that Riley actually died of syphilis of the brain. Oh. Which killed... Al Capone. Al Capone. Same, same thing. And likely he hired Sam to help him out at the lighthouse in those last months because he was unable to do the job himself, that, that the syphilis had just taken over. And the reason his wife was so quick to sign off and send him to the asylum was that she had been watching his progression downhill and she knew she couldn't care for him anymore. And so she, she sent him off to live the last six months of his life at that light. 
And then it was 25 years later, another lighthouse keeper fell and died not far on the cliffs, not far from when, where Sam Anderson died. And uh, this book doesn't talk much about ghost stories, but there are uh, rumors that the ghost of Sam Anderson pushed uh, Captain Dugan off the cliff to die there where he had you know, died 26 years earlier. Well, that's what I'll say. The last time you joined us was to celebrate your first book, Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. And this one obviously has a, has a dark theme also. And, and then there's all these unsolved mysteries that go along, even despite all your research. How did the original genesis of death and lighthouses on the Great Lakes come to be? Well, after I finished Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, there were a handful of stories that didn't necessarily have the paranormal connection, but they had this dark history. There's a growing fascination or a continued fascination with true crime. And, and this is a, a genre of, of books and TV shows that I've been enthralled with for, for many years. I spend most of my days on forensic files on HLN and I'm watching cold cases and I'm reading books about murders and suicides. You know, Marty Link, who's from Traverse City, has a, a number of great books on this. Good friend of mine, Tobin Book, has uh, historical true crime friend of mine has a bookstore in Lansing called Dead Time Stories. And, and it was, you know, watching these people, and I'd always wanted to do this true crime book. There were just so many stories that were kind of left over from Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. And again, it allowed me to also branch out into the whole Great Lakes region and pull some stories from Wisconsin and from Canada, from Illinois and Ohio to be to be part of this. And, and it was just that that true crime fascination I aspire to do a book on one specific case like Marty and Tobin and many of these other true crime authors that I that I admire. This one just allowed me to, to utilize. It was easier for me to take the lighthouse stories and just pull out the true crime in that. It's also interesting to note that I'm not the only one that's in this. Like people think, wow, you're really into this dark stuff. Should I be worried? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I mean, I'm not alone. There are a lot of people that are into the to the cold cases, into the true crime. In fact, I'm working with Jen at Dead Time Stories, and we're looking to produce a, a Michigan crime conference in Lansing next year to shed light on some of these topics and, and some of these historic things. And so, you know, lighthouses weren't any different. They were remote locations. These were 1800s, 1900s. And a lot of them are still unsolved cold cases because, you know, they didn't have forensic science like we have today right. you know there were no blood spatter experts there was no dna testing finger well maybe a little bit of fingerprinting in the early part but you know they couldn't do blood tests to determine what actually was the cause of death unless there was an obvious connection so these cases you know never will be solved truly because the evidence doesn't exist anymore to test it for for these uh, for these theories. Right. Um, one question too is uh, as I'm looking through the book over and over again, uh, which lighthouse is featured on the cover of the book? Because it definitely has a creepy vibe. <laughs> that is uh, South Bass Island. Okay. Is that it... is where Sam Anderson died. And then on the back, uh, one of the photographs, um, the older keeper with the cap on is uh, Captain Dugan, who was the keeper uh, there at that lighthouse. So. There are some very interesting photos. We got a chance. Another great place I did research was over in Door County, Wisconsin. We went there last Memorial Day, and we 
we went out on a boat ride that took us past Plum Island and Pilot Island. And Pilot Island is in the book where we had a keeper there who committed suicide, slit his own throat from ear to ear after consulting with a local butcher about where the jugular was and how deep and hard one would need to cut in order to sever it. Um, And uh, so we got a chance to take a boat ride out behind that lighthouse, which is now a refuge for migrating birds and it literally looks there's a photo in the book it's like a scene out of a hitchcock movie very appropriate for a a crime at the lighthouse you know a a suicide at the lighthouse it really showed the desolation the remoteness the potential loneliness that was going on there so that was a that was a fascinating one and to get to visit some of the other lights and islands of of door county i'll be back there doing a book signing in october or september october as part of their fall lighthouse conference yeah such a special place over there too even though that we we get to watch the sunsets they watch the sunrises right <laughs> well i guess on door if you're on the tip of door county you can get both you can get both you get both in the comments about the currently for sale middle island property and lighthouse station the word romantic is repeatedly stated and that is a common uh, presumption when visitors and enthusiasts, including myself, visit these historic structures. But rom- romantic is obviously not the word the subjects in your book would use to describe their experiences while tending to the lights uh, uh, from back in the day. Uh, no, not at all. You know, everybody thinks that that lighthouse service was, you know, it must be so gloriously romantic to wake up and see the sunset, uh, see the sunrise, and at the end of the day, see the sunset and to live in such a beautiful house. And it's just like something out of a romance novel. Well, yeah, I'm sure you got all those great things. But what you also had was, uh, as we mentioned previously, you know, climbing the tower multiple times a day, hauling pails of hot oil or whale oil, lard and whatnot up to the top. All of the grueling work when you if you if familiar at all with the burning of, of oils or later kerosene, uh, there's a lot of soot involved. And so you're cleaning if you don't like washing windows, you don't become a lighthouse keeper because you're cleaning these windows every day, inside and out, and the Fresnel lens to keep it crystal clear so that it, it projects out into the lake um, efficiently. You're taking care of the house. You're taking care of the grounds. You have to run. Back then, they would have had family gardens, perhaps some livestock. They would have had families that they had to run. These were tourist attractions even back then, so they would have had to welcome visitors into their home. The house always had to be up to snuff because there could be an inspection. So it was a very hard, physical, mental, emotional job during storms. Of course, you were up all night making sure that the the light stayed lit. You often had to assist with lighthouse rescues, you know, in the water out uh, off of the coast. So romance is for movies and, <laughs> and love stories. It was not really part of the actual life of a keeper at these lighthouses. It was remote. You take a look at the, the lights that were on the ends of peninsulas or, or out in the offshore areas or on islands. It was remote. It, often you were on, if you were on an island, if it wasn't a populated island, you had no one else out there to talk to. You had a supply ship that came in every four to six weeks, but that was about it. You had to occupy your time reading and writing, maybe, you know, taking some hikes and whatnot, but it's not not like they had television and the internet to keep them entertained. It was, it was a very difficult, remote, lonely job. And you know, some of the assistants up uh, between Whitefish Point, Vermilion Point, 
Deer Park, Chris Point, Two-Hearted River. Another thing that they had to do was in the evenings, one person had to walk and they would meet each other and they would hand off a tag saying that they actually had fulfilled their duty of walking the shoreline. So they're walking back and forth, walking walking the shoreline and looking for ships in distress out on the water in the evenings, which is about as spooky as you can get back in the day, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and you talk about that in relation in my first book, we talk about Point Iroquois Lighthouse. And in 1919, the SS Myron sank and Keeper Burns had to walk the shoreline to recover the bodies of the men who died. 18 men, I believe, died in that shipwreck. The um, captain was the only survivor. And he found half the men that, that November, but it wasn't until the following April when things started to thaw that they had found the remaining eight men encased in ice still wearing their life vest. And it was his job to chip them out of the ice and prepare them for burial. So there's nothing romantic in that either. No, and you know, there's a, there's a mortician. This is, this is kind of morbid, but in, in Sault Ste. Marie, there was a mortician that paid $5 a body for the keepers and their assistants to, to go up and down the shore. In addition to their duties, it was also a little bit of a reward. So they're out there trying to make a little extra money. He would he would pay $5 for each frozen body or um, even if it wasn't frozen, obviously, but um, but he would pay $5 for each body that was retrieved on the shorelines from the unfortunate uh, sailors. And, you know, what was interesting about that, um, and Keeper Burns was was paid 5 to $25 for Ooh. the, quote, floaters. Oh. Um, and that's what the newspaper called it. You know, we think of, you think about some media today and, you know, you're standing at the grocery line and you've got the National Enquirer and all this other stuff. Newspapers back in the late 18, early 1900s, they were just as sensationalized. And some of the headlines, in fact, that S.S. Myron accident was well covered um, across the country in the newspapers. And the headlines were just horrific with regard to the insensitivity and, and, and all of the details about that. The, uh, the cemetery in Brimley, going up the hill, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember yeah. the name. Uh, they're, Mission they're bar- Hill. They're, they're buried there eight, all together, yep. eight of them. Yep, yep. We went uh, we went there when we were out doing the research at Point Iroquois, and then we we went up to Mission Hill, and we also looked around. Uh, again, these are all stories from the first book, but we walked around looking for the water or the uh, fire tower where uh, Mr. Palm Ranke worked, and his family lived nearby in the late 1940s when his daughter was snagged by a bear and killed mm-hmm. in that area. Right. You confirmed uh, her, that for her me. Her ghost has been at uh, Point Iroquois Lighthouse as well. And I always thought that was lore, but you, you, you've, you've proven that was fact. Yeah, so we did find newspaper articles about the death of Carol Ann Pomeranke. She was three years old. And I did have some communication with a family friend who did verify it, did not want to be named, and said that the family didn't want to talk about it at all. But uh, I found it in several books, and there were several newspaper articles that I found as well about, uh, about her death. And so just to confirm that you're not the only person that's kind of infatuated or interested in cold case files, in our last episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past, we discussed the, the tragic Robeson Goodhart murders. Oh, yeah. And we'll be yeah. uh, we'll be discussing more murders uh, and famous and infamous murders in, in this series this year, and not for the morbid factor or to be, again, sensationalistic like you mentioned, but eventually we're going to conclude with a few tales of local murder that resulted in legally groundbreaking precedents, uh, not just here in Michigan, but even worldwide. So... Although it doesn't take place in, in northern Michigan, tell us about chapter one of your book, The Oldest Lighthouse in the Great Lakes, and its first keeper, the doomed, how do you say, Rattlemuller? J.P. Rattlemuller. There you go. Yeah. So that was that is in Toronto, 
And I'm super excited, actually, because uh, we're heading out on a pretty um, a pretty morbid kind of tour starting next week, actually. We're taking a road trip to the East Coast. Our final destination is Salem, Massachusetts. So there's going to be a whole bunch of history there. But we're returning through Canada and we're going to stop through or pass through Toronto. So I'm hoping to be able to go to Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. Um, which is still there um, and still standing. And this light was built in the early 1800s. And J.P. Rademuller was a German descendant who had made his way to northern Canada. He had actually been a servant for some royal families in Europe and had made trips with them to Canada, determined he liked the area and that when he would retire from service as a porter or an assistant, that he would like to move to, to, to Canada. So he ends up here and gets appointed in around 1908 as the lighthouse keeper. And of course, he's German. So he's one of his major loves is beer, right? And he starts making beer at the lighthouse. That pastime actually led to his demise. There was a fort nearby. And of course, as we're approaching the War of 1812, and you know, there's just a lot of activity going on. Well, his body is found and he's dead that they determine that he had sold watered down beer to two soldiers from the fort who weren't happy with the fact that they were getting an inferior product and rumor has it that they killed him dismembered him and buried parts of his body around the lighthouse so one of the things that's really important to me in in my books and in my research is not just to regurgitate what everybody else says. I want to go in and either prove or disprove it. And so, of course, I went through a bunch of um, Reddit files and connected with some historians and was finding information like, okay, so Rademuller died in January and Gibraltar Point Lighthouse was at the end of a rocky point. How easy would it have been to dig multiple holes to bury body parts in Tough. January Tough. in Canada, right? Not particularly easy, right? Well, if the men who reportedly were drunk when they killed him, were they really of mind to, hmm, let's kill the guy, dismember him and bury him around the property? Did they have that ability to do that in a drunken state? And so what I determined was, yes, he was killed. His body was left near the lighthouse. I don't even think it was completely buried. And, and two men were arrested. In fact, this is one of the few stories in the book where someone was arrested. Most of these, there were, you know, there was nobody charged, nobody arrested in them. So these two soldiers were arrested and charged, but acquitted of his death and were released. And so it is still truly unsolved or, you know, maybe they got off on a technicality of some sort, but Rademuller was, you know, he was not the only one selling bootleg liquor that ended up getting killed for cutting it with water. We had another keeper up on Lake Superior that was reportedly doing that. And another keeper who was clearly not smart and was <laughs> partying it up with local Native Americans drinking the wood alcohol. Ugh that was used for cleaning at the light. Apparently he would dilute it enough so that it wasn't killing him. 
Well, the Native Americans robbed him of that, didn't realize that it had to be cut, drank it straight, and they ended up dying. So I guess they had their own justice in that, I guess. But yeah, some of the stories are just really bizarre. Well, even in this one, you talked about sensationalistic uh, newspapers at the time. And in and, and your book, you talked that they, they dramatically stated his, murders, his murder was to be pronounced barbarous and inhumane. And that's whether or not it was a metal belt buckle or a chunk of firewood, or a shovel that ultimately did him in, which at that point yeah. I think becomes a moot point. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And, you know, of course, they, don't, they didn't have the ability back then to necessarily determine cause of death, you know, in the early 1800s, unless it was obvious, you know, unless there is an axe sticking out of his head or something like that. You know, they just didn't have the, the forensic and the, the research ability to determine all these things like we do today. Right, right. Diana, so every time we talk, and it doesn't matter if, it, if it's on the phone, via text, or in person, the conversation automatically turns to our mutual passion for history and the unknown, and, and sometimes those, those dark stories, uh, and, and extends on to, to one of us, really, it really has to go, can we invite you back for another episode and conversation about your new book, and finally maybe tell the, the story about the, the painting incident I've been teasing the listeners with today? Absolutely. I, you know, Chris, I'm here anytime to chat with you. All right, then. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and please join us next time as we learn more about death and lighthouses on the Great Lakes, history and murder and misfortune, obviously, with author, historian, and promoter of All That Is Michigan, Diana Stanfler, on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past.